Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 157, recorded on March 16th, 2022. The Cloud Pod goes on a quest, an AWS Cloud Quest. Good Ooh. evening, Jonathan, Peter, and Ryan. How's it going? Hello. Good. I feel like we need trumpeted fanfare. Do do do. Yeah. yeah, these are things you say in the pre-read so we can get the sound effect before we record, but it's okay. It's fine. We'll, <laughs> we'll make improvements for next time. Like I could have got that. I have access to sounds. I just didn't know. Well, it's uh, once again a very busy week here in the cloud, uh, as well as Pi Day uh, passed us up just a couple days ago. So, of course, uh, Amazon's here talking about Pi once again. Uh, and Google, you know, who trumpeted a few years ago how amazing their Pi calculations were uh, was silent on the topic. So apparently the marketing buzz of Pi Day only works for AWS and Google. Google bailed out mm. on that. But before we get to Amazon Pi, let's talk about how do you burn a whole lot of money really, really quick on the cloud. <laughs> and that was with the biggest and baddest servers you can buy, which was the X1 series, followed slowly by the X2 series uh, for all your... Uh, <clears throat> SAP HANA workloads. Uh, AWS yes. has even new, bigger, and badder instances for you to throw your money away on uh, today. And that is the new X2 uh, IDN and the X2 IEDN built on top of Nitro and third generation of Intel Xeon scalable Ice Lake processors with up to 50% higher compute price performance to the X1. Uh, I do find it interesting that they compare it to the X1 and not the X2. Uh, and for those of you who are like, what's an IEDN server? Uh, the 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 holy grail of this is I is for Intel, E is for memory optimized, and D is for local NVMe SSD storage, and N is for higher speed networking. Uh, and if you're like, well, how high does it go? It goes to the moon, baby. X2 IDN <laughs> starts at 64 vCPU and one terabytes of RAM with a one uh, 1900 gigabyte NVMe drive and up to 50 gigabits of network throughput all the way to 128 vCPU and two terabytes of RAM with two 1900 NVMe drivers and up to uh, uh, 100 gigabits of network bandwidth. All for the low price of either $4,868 for the low end or $9,736 per month for the high end. And if you're like, that's not enough money burning that I can do, the X2 IEDN has you uh, in their sites with the four VPC, uh, sorry, four vCPU and 120 gig of memory with 118 gigabytes of local NVMe storage up to 25 gigs of networking. That's the low end. But on the high end, you can get 128 vCPU, four terabytes of RAM, two 1900 gigabyte NVMe storage and 100 gigabytes of networking bandwidth. And this spend uh, cost you only $19,473.48 per month without our eyes or savings plan. So there you go. You want to burn money on fire and make your CFO cry. The X2 IDN is your friend. 32XL size. I like it. I feel like this is an angry overreaction to that one guy on any one developer team who thinks that whatever the problem is, it, it could be solved by throwing more server resources at it. And I feel like they've just released this and said, see, it still doesn't work. Maybe. It's still SAP. I was looking at using one of these to uh, archive my application logs. Good idea. <laughs> just in memory, four terabytes of yeah. application logs, just store them in memory. Well, you want to recall them pretty fast, right? So yeah, yeah. totally. Just sense. in case I get audited, just in case. Yeah, you need that security yeah. log from you know two years ago and minutes to <laughs> satisfy your auditor or fail the audit finding. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, those are those are those are pricey. Uh, I, you know, I don't have a use case for either of them, but uh, if I did, I could burn money just like everyone else. So, what's cheaper to store your four terabytes of application logs in memory 
on an X2 IEDN or to pay for Splunk. <laughs> well, in, in reality, you need the server to run Splunk. Yeah, so yeah. really, you're paying for both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, if you uh, are excited about Pi Day, which we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Amazon is here once again uh, celebrating Pi Day with Jeff Barr blog post here to brag. Uh, and so he wants you to know that S3 now holds more than 200 trillion objects. Uh, and he then compared it to a bunch of uh, things to make it sound more big and scary. Uh, that's 28,000 objects for every resident on planet Earth, for example. Uh, if you were to write one object per second, it would take you 6.342 million years to reach this number. Or there are 2 trillion galaxies in the visible universe, so that's 100 objects per galaxy. Uh, that is definitely a lot of objects in the Amazon uh, S3 buckets. Uh, they do say they're averaging now over 100 million requests per second. Uh, and I think they talk about this because they were storing Pi data in S3 at one point, but I think they kind of stopped doing that. So now they just tout about how big Amazon S3 is now and all that durability. But the but someone pointed out on Twitter, I saw that if you have 200 trillion objects and you have a 11 nines of durability, that's like 2,000 objects you're losing a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, which that's a lot of objects. I don't. I, no one's complaining about losing two thousand objects a year. So you do wonder uh, maybe that eleven nine is just an SLA and not a reality. I think because it's an average, right? So there's that one customer that just lost a crap load of data, <laughs> and he's under a strict gag order. He's like, "You're not allowed to talk to anybody." Yes, we lost two thousand of your objects. I'm sorry, but you know you can't mention it to anybody. We'll give you a nice big credit. Yeah, that's pretty cool though. Or they they act, yeah they actually have the empirical data now to prove they're better than eleven nines potentially. Yeah, most likely. Instead of the math. But uh, I'll tell you when I'll be impressed. I'll be impressed when there's as many objects as there are ants in the, in the, on the planet. Mm. I had to look it up. 10 billion billion. Yes. I know some dev teams that can give that a run for its money. So like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least a trillion of those objects are, are Ryan's. So. Yeah, exactly. Need <laughs> <laughs> to be the object. Lots of small ones. Uh, you know, maybe you can get your credits that now and now in X2 IEDN instances. You know, just like for every outage you get. Like, I'd like one of those for a month, please, for free. Yeah. That, that make up for your losses. I got to figure out what to do with it, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could you could use it for Elasticsearch, of course, right? That's what everyone uses it for. Uh, well, uh, there's been an issue with ECS for years, and those of you who are familiar with ECS in any probable way probably know exactly what I'm talking about at this moment. When it has to do with ECS services, particularly if you created a service and you said to yourself, oh, I don't need a load balancer today. But then two weeks from now, you realize, oh, no, I do need a load balancer because I'm not load balancing my traffic across multiple containers and they die. Uh, you then realize that you couldn't do that. You had to destroy the service and re-add it back in. Or service registries or tag propagation or... ECS managed tags or service registries, all these things had to be managed at time of creation when sometimes you don't, you just don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing until like three days later. I had to debug the container running first. Then I'll figure out how to load balance it. Uh, and so they finally fixed this. I think there's a PFR that is my name somewhere in this. <laughs> that the added <laughs> Ooh, flexibility nice. makes it easier for customers to update their Amazon ECS service configuration as they now support updating the service without having to recreate the service, thus reducing the operational overhead and potential service disruption. And literally two weeks ago, I just was setting up a Fargate cluster and had this exact same thing and yeah. bitched about the fact that this was still broken. Yeah. Uh, and so two weeks <laughs> later, it's now fixed. So I appreciate that this is now finally fixed. ECS finally getting features that I actually care about. Yeah, the the amount of modernizations that we've had to enable behind the scenes to make 
you know, just common CI CD patterns work with ECS. It's, you know, it's just, you know, it, it was one of those things that I, I guess I was a frog in boiling water, um, even though I came from like a Kubernetes, you know, experiment to ECS. But it just made sense to me. But then you start running it in practice and it's nightmarish. And so you're doing all these tricks with DNS and multiple services and trying to, you know, spread them out. And so this is nice. They, they can just update. Thank you. It's about time. That's all I have to say. Yeah. Uh, and then moving on to ECS features I don't care about. Uh, <laughs> ECS now supports on-premise workload orchestration on top of Windows uh, OS nodes. Uh, so they now support uh, customers running and managing their own container-based apps on-premises, including virtual machines, bare metal servers, and other customer managed infrastructure to now run ECS anywhere on top of Windows to run all of your Windows workloads in containers. So for those of you who are doing that, awesome. You're super happy. For me, I don't care. <laughs> but that's running that's running ECS anywhere on Windows, not Windows containers in ECS. Well, you couldn't run Windows on top well, of Linux container hosts before. So yes, you ha you had to have Windows agents on the nodes to then be able to run Windows guests on premise with ECS anyway. Uh, yeah. I mean that's the real reason for this, right? Because it's is to you know that you need Hyper V in the Windows um, OS to support those Windows containers. And so this is this enables that. And I'm sure. There's lots of people asking for it for some reason. Yeah. And for those of you who have who have gone like super nuclear on Docker and were mad that uh, EKS did not support Windows Container D runtimes, that's now been fixed as well. So if you didn't like EKS, or sorry, ECS Windows Containers, EKS has you now backed up with Container D support in Kubernetes 1.21. And this allows you to have a container runtime that runs on Windows workers uh, fully supported in a lightweight container runtime that manages a complete container lifecycle on its host system from container image transfer to execution as well as storage and network attachment. And as we know, all Windows containers are at least five gigs in size. Uh, and so, you know, being able to manage that is super important in a lightweight method. I'm starting to get my releases mixed up with like between EKS and AKS and just straight Kubernetes. I'm like, isn't this, didn't they just do one dot? I, I don't know where I am anymore. There's too many Kubernetes. Uh. Yeah. Well, and every cloud provider has supports different versions of it, and mm -hmm. they're not all in sync. And you know, they don't always and, adopt the same beta features that the other ones do. Like, there, there is a lot of complexity for trying to do multi-cloud Kubernetes. Yeah, you know, just trying to make sure that we're covered for Container D because it is about. I think the the latest Kubernetes release, like it's the the Docker ship is no longer supported in any way. So we're trying to make sure that everything's covered with that, which largely it is, but it's hard. There's a lot of different versions to check and make sure and figure out what's what. There's lots of Kubernetes is. Many, many Kubernetes. That's how it works. Well, uh, AWS app config feature flags are now generally available. Uh, this allows you to quickly roll out new features safely with more confidence. Of course, AWS app config is part of uh, the feature flag capabilities part of SSM and should not be confused with the other SSM, or sorry, the other feature flag feature called Evidently. Uh, and the flag is stored in configuration data once the feature is ready to be released. Engineers can update the flag configuration data without deploying any code. Now, of course, that did require that the engineer actually read the flag to actually have it <laughs> toggle this on or off. So don't get fooled by the marketing folks. There is work for your dev team to do to still enable this, yeah. even though turning on or off the flag does not now require a recompiling. Magic. Step one, you're going to need a whole spike just to figure out where this feature lives in the stupid dashboard. <laughs> oh. Dashboard complaints. Oh, I just SSM, like, 
this is the like one of those things like this should be some either a standalone service or somewhere else. The fact that they buried it in SSM is just a travesty. I mean, you, other choices they buried it into CloudWatch with evidently. So yeah, good point. You know, you'd, you know, where do you want it buried in CloudWatch or in SSM? At least in SSM, it makes sense to me. Yeah, it makes sense. It does. I mean, the console doesn't make sense, but the what SSM's purpose is, which is to be a simple systems manager. Conceptually, I agree that the feature flagging capability should be built into that. Now, we can argue about the console all day long. <laughs> <laughs> and the disorganization of the SSM console, which is a travesty acro- across design patterns. But, you know, there we are. It is nice having one place, though, to, to store all the feature flags and sets of feature flags, especially if you've got many different application components. Well, it's, I mean, if you're adopting the SSM you know, SDK into your application, it's only one SDK you have to now to do configuration, to do feature flagging, to do uh, integration into patching and all kinds of other maintenance window stuff that you can now do. So there's a lot of advantage to it. Um, just I wish it was easier to use. It's a feature that only a mother would love. That's how I do it. <laughs> SSM. Uh, well, Amazon RDS for PostgreSQL now supports the MySQL forward uh, extension for Amazon Aurora, MySQL, and MariaDB because apparently... If you are a NoSQL database that then supports SQL, you have to also be a database that now supports Postgres, I think is how that works. Uh, and so Amazon RDS for PostgreSQL adds support for the MySQL FDW, which allows your Postgres database to connect and retrieve data stored in any MySQL-based instance. These foreign data wrappers, which is FDW stands for, are libraries for the PostgreSQL database that can communicate with external data sources, abstracting the details of connecting to the data source and obtaining data from it. So this is a this is a Postgres extension for those. Didn't we just... Home. Patch that and log for J. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> like, wait, this is on purpose? Kind of wonder who wants to use that exactly. I guess it's, it's nice to have linked tables between different database systems. But those those foreign data lookups are, are really useful. You can you can build plugins for all kinds of cool stuff. I saw saw a number of years ago, um, somebody built a um, an AWS. Plugin for Postgres, and you could browse the content, you know, browse your instances or browse the deployed hardware um, as though they were Postgres tables. Why? Kind of gives you a sequel. Oh, just think how nice that is for reporting before before billing got better and before FinOps became a thing and those tools didn't exist. It's you could literally do select, you know, select instance ID or comma instance type from this region, and it would give you a BS list of everything that you've got and, and, the, and the tags on there and who owns it, who's running it, all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's just a way of gathering data that's not using the the regular AWS SDKs. And who doesn't, you know, which business people don't know SQL? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the SQL part I get, it's just the, it's the, you know, populating a data set versus having the data set sort of dynamically populated when query just seems... Like it's, I, I just seems weird to put that at the data layer than the application layer. But feels like something is too tightly coupled to me between disparate. Because if you have disparate systems like that, why do you have disparate systems? Probably different owners. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, no foreign data lookups. That's good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, versus writing an ETL job in Glue and having it transfer that way, I'll take this every day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Until it fails. I wonder if DocumentDB is going to support it. Why, why is there blocking coming from our Postgres database? Well, you know, I use this thing because I didn't want to write a glue job. Sorry. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is rope. This is what I call rope to hang yourself with. Yeah. Mm. Then I, my response to that would be like, well, you know, if you just given me parquet files, I wouldn't have had to do this at all. I could just use it. <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, well, this story is interesting. Um, so I'm going to try to figure out how to, uh, you know, talk about this in a way that doesn't make me just completely snark about everything about it. So there's <laughs> well, two new well, features. On, on. Oh, sorry. One, one sec. Don't, don't we have to build, get our character sheets and, uh, yeah, and yeah. <laughs> roll characters? So let me get my D20s out. <laughs> I'm going to be... Cloud, Cloud Pod Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. I'm going to be the nerd. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they call Mage. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let me start with the easy part of this to understand. So Amazon is releasing a new version of AWS Educate that no longer requires the .edu email address, making it more accessible to normal people. And the AWS Education will allow learners as young as 13 now access to hundreds of hours of free self-paced training resources and labs specifically designed for the new to the cloud learners. Now, in my mind, I'm telling, thinking to myself, yes, my 13-year-old, wants to learn about S3 object durability, I'm sure. I'm sure he's riveted by the concept. Of course. Um, and so, you know, I think they were sitting around and said to themselves, how do we get 13-year-olds to be interested in learning about Amazon education? And so someone said, you know, my 13-year-old is addicted to Roblox. And so the second part of this announcement is the announcement of CloudQuest, which is a 3D role-playing game. Uh, this new game... Uh, based role-playing experience, AWS Cloud Quest Cloud Practitioner uh, is teaches you the foundational cloud computing concepts while learners zap drones and collect gems in their quest to solve challenges in a virtual city. And uh, I did this earlier today, guys. And uh, Ooh. it's interesting. How was it? Uh, well, you know, I, I did the, the first mission, which was to create a... Basically, the, the town... The mayor told me that I was an aspiring technology person that clearly could solve their problem. And I told, I spit it out to him a bunch of random crap about how they should be looking at AWS because they're taking too long to provision stuff in the city. And he said, that sounds amazing. You should totally do this. And then he asked me to take the tide, the tides for the waves for the beach and basically put that onto a static website hosted off of S3. And then it takes you through a lab process where it, I go into a lab and I created a bucket that I named something like CloudQuest is stupid. And I put in these <laughs> objects into it. And then I hosted the thing, and then you do a validation, and it validated that I did it correctly, and then it gave me points that I was then able to build a lighthouse with. And so, you know, if, if you've ever wanted the job of living in a 3D world where a construction worker runs up to you and tells you that the server running in this weather app is failing, and to help them figure this out, this game is for you. <laughs> and you can Don't learn all the gems work. and build yeah. out your city. <laughs> and uh, it feels very much like Roblox. Uh, the quality of the graphics is very Roblox-esque. And... I give it an A for effort and an F for execution. <laughs> so oh. that's my <laughs> I want to wait for the Grand Theft Auto version where we get to like go around machine gunning servers down. Mm -hmm. I know. Let's, let's, let's do the other side of it. That's kind of fun. Yeah. I can just, just hear my son now. They'll be like, 11 nines? What the? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not today. Unfortunately, your son is not at the 13-year-old age uh, requirement for this particular training. So you're going to have to have your daughter do it, which I'm sure she'll be super enthused about. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah. So if you're curious what what your job is like in a Roblox type environment, you can go play with this. I I opened it. I did it. I will not be back. <laughs> so, but I was. It was. It, it's interesting, uh, to say the least. I'm curious if like, yeah, because you know, like cloud practitioner level, like that's like sort of sales level understanding. Mm. Um, I wonder if it would be. I wonder if salespeople. I wonder if we'd have a higher conversion rate. Salespeople getting their cloud practitioner cert with this tool. Well, someone on this podcast has salespeople who report, who work for him, and so he could probably sure, try it. 
Should I definitely try. You should definitely yes. do this. You should definitely let us know how it goes. Okay. Yeah. All right. We want we want we want foghorn feedback on this next week for sure. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. I'll see if I can get. And then if nobody does anything, then that tells us our answer effectively. Yeah. I'm trying to decide whether I use this as like a reward for my children or punishment. Because <laughs> like, I can see like you know giving them a punishment and they're like oh a video game and then I trap them. Yeah. It was, you know, it it tells you what to do, which is interesting. It's like, you know, you need to go into Amazon console and you need to create a bucket and you need to make it publicly accessible. But like, there's no actual like step-by-step instruction. So I'm not actually sure that someone who doesn't have familiarity with it, with Amazon already is going to be able to do this. It's like, I I know things like, hey, when you create a bucket, uh, it, you know, the ACLs have to be applied to it for public access for the web thing to work. I know that, that you can't actually specify that it's a third, you know, a static website hosting a creation of the bucket. You actually have to go back into the properties of the bucket after creation to do that. Uh, like there's things that I just know inherently because I've done this a thousand times, probably more than that actually. Um, and I've also written the Terraform code to do it. So I know how this works. <laughs> so the, I have that concept that I actually knew what they were telling me to do. I don't know that my son would know what they're telling him to do. He'd be like, what's a bucket and what's S3 and how do I get there? Cause, and so I was, like the game is kind of an interesting concept, but then the, the implementation of the practice, maybe like they do walk you through a diagram of what you're doing. Like they give you a conceptual diagram of like, Hey, here's the bucket and, and we're going to have a static website and here's a web page. It's going to be in the thing. Like they give you that, but they don't actually tell you how to do it inside of the console. So interesting. But they do single sign on you into the console, which is nice. And it is a sandbox in the actual console. Um, so you get to actually be in AWS. Is it, is it an in-game console? Like, I mean, is it like a, a virtual video screen in the game that where you see the console or you have to like... No, no, it, uh, it opens a new tab. Oh, that sucks. Well, I mean, con- compared to the fact that you're going to have to go do a research assignment to figure out that your bucket has to be named appropriately for web hosting, you know, like to match the domain, like all those little gotchas. Well, that, they're not even having you do that. They're just using... All you need to do is prove that you rename the index.html page to wave.html page and then yeah. give them whatever URL you got from the default bucket. So you actually don't have to do the custom DNS thing. <laughs> so you don't have that journey to go down on this particular okay. use case. Like, they're not that hard, but they're not easy either. <laughs> hmm. We'll see. Maybe it's the start of a long, you know, a new thing. You know, I'm totally going to, you know, I have a, you know, cloud center of excellence to build out. Why not make them all play video games for work? Mm. I'm gonna need you to write to roll a dexterity roll for that to see how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is. I think it's a fun idea. I think it's cool they tried it. I have a feeling it's not gonna catch on. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. We'll see. There's there's an intern though who's probably really proud. That's all I. Just, I at least I hope mm-hmm. this is an intern project, and it's a good intern project if it's an intern thing. But yeah, I I hope they didn't spend a lot of money. <laughs> so we'll see. All right, well, let's move on to GCP, where we find the announcement of the week. So I don't have a sound effect yet. <laughs> uh, this is an interesting announcement. Uh, so Google is announcing major changes to its capabilities and pricing for customers with varied workloads. Uh, the plan is to provide you new flexible SKUs, Jonathan's favorite word, that allows you to pay only for what you are using with new product options and capabilities. These changes also align with how other cloud providers charge for similar products, so customers can more easily compare services between leading cloud providers. And net-net, this basically means some of these changes will provide you a new lower-cost option and feature of GCP, and others will raise prices on certain products. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Dun-dun-dun. 
Uh, some of the specific changes, uh, cloud storage pricing changes for data mobility, including replication of data written to a dual or multi-region storage bucket and inter-region data access. Uh, introduction of a new lower-cost archive snapshot option for persistent disk so that compliance archiving use cases are charged less than compute-intensive DevOps workloads. And new outbound data processing pricing for cloud load balancing in line with other cloud providers. And new pricing for network topology, which will include a performance dashboard with a network intelligence center and no additional charge. Uh, and this quote from the article makes me laugh. The impact of the pricing change depends on the customer's use cases and usage. While some customers may see an increase in their bills, we're also introducing new options for some services to better align with usage, which would lower some customers' bills. In fact, many customers will be able to adapt their portfolios and usage to decrease costs, and we're working directly with customers to help them understand which changes may impact them. Uh, the new pricing goes effect on October 1st, uh, and if you are in a situation where your data is in the wrong area and you want to move it, they're letting you use the storage transfer service for free. Uh, from April 2nd to the end of the year to adjust your locations uh, before they charge you a crap ton of money. Uh, TechCrunch Tech Crunch breaks down pretty nicely for us. Uh, always free internet egress goes from 1 gig to 100 gigs. So that's uh, in matching with what AWS did in theirs. And then the core storage feature, like multi-region nearline, will see a 50% increase uh, with operations for Google Cloud Codeline Storage at Class A will double from $0.10 cents per 10,000 operations to $0.20 cents per 10,000 operations. And while reading data in a cloud storage bucket located in a multi-region was free on the same continent, you'll now be charged just like any other data moved from Google Cloud locations on the same continent. Load balancing egress charges go from uh, an eighth of a penny to a penny and a quarter, depending on the region. And default replication pricing in the US, uh, NAM4, EU, and ER4 location will increase from zero per gigabyte to point or to two pennies per gigabyte. And with default replication pricing in Asia, and Asia one location will increase from zero to eight cents per gigabyte. So that can be a pretty big uh, increase in cost for some people, depending on your portfolio. If you're doing a lot of data in uh, cloud storage that you're accessing quite often, uh, things got really expensive for you. If you store a lot of data in cloud storage and you don't touch it very often, your pricing just probably went down. That's how I would basically summarize this for you. Mm. Right. Any other time, competitors uh, align their prices to be you know, sort of more in line with each other. That's, that's called a cartel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well. You know, <laughs> That's not really true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, if they were if they were meeting in dark hotel rooms, uh, talking about the pricing and that you know, hey Google, you're screwing it up because you're not charging for this thing, and they all agreed that you should charge for it, and they did it, then that's that's price collusion that you can't. Yeah, that's collusion. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, price this, matching this is, is not price matching. Is not not <laughs> price matching is usually going down though, not, not going up. <laughs> yeah, I am. Cu- I'm curious though. About the uh, the compute intensive DevOps workloads because I I've yet to see a compute intensive DevOps workload. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, which we're, like I can see one of those that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, you know the the thing about you know this is that one of the big differentiators people talk about is with Google is that data transfer charges between inner region are cheaper, but not anymore. Like now they're pretty expensive and they don't scale linear. You know they don't have a scale based on throughput. You know, all of a sudden, my SQL Server clusters that are on Google that replicate data between each other all of a sudden now have a cost they didn't have before. Like, there's a lot of lot of things here that uh, are potentially problematic. And, you know, I agree that, you know, it probably makes it easier for customers to compare between different cloud vendors. But if this is a differentiator for you to get customers away from GC, you know, from Azure or AWS, then this is now removing that competitive advantage that you had as well. So, you know, they must be desperate for money over there or something because I don't quite get it. Yeah, I wonder, like, because, you know, I was thinking about, like, you know, the way they announced it, the, 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 the word choice was, you know, giving, giving their customers choice. And so when I first 
started reading about this, you know, all I heard was like Google's raising their prices. But then when I tried to dig deeper, it's like, all right, so I can see how I could use this to define my workloads and, and optimize for cost, which in, in a lot of senses is good. But then you start looking at the different things that they're charging for and they're their enterprise or production features, right? Like that's replication, things like that. That's stuff you need when you have real data. So it makes it a little tricky to to include that in SLDC life cycles because now your environments aren't consistent. And I don't know. Like I, I'm going back and forth on this one. It's kind of like the choice I have in my dining room. It says dinner choices, take it or leave it. <laughs> uh. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I think it's fair for companies in, that are in the cloud and, you know, Google's going to be competitive in the market. They can't, they're not just going to raise rates because they're a monopoly, which they're not, they're not even the leader. Um, but it, I bet it does open individuals' eyes who are committing to these tool, these platforms and doing their math before they commit to them. And then the math changes uh, to be more expensive after the fact. And I tried to relate it to someone who's like used to old school um, IT spend and you do your math and you buy like the NetApp appliances that you need for your storage. And then like six months later or a year later into the four-year cycle, NetApp calls you and like, hey, we uh, totally screwed up that pricing. We're not going to make, decided we're not going to make money on the stuff we sold you. So we're going to ask you for a little more money now. We're going to need you to give us another 20%. It's like, Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and that's one of the big arguments that people yeah. have made against the cloud forever is that oh, you know, once they get you locked in, they're going to jack the rates up, and then you're screwed because you're stuck there. And like yeah. this is this is kind of that exact thing. This is now giving credence to those those naysayers who've traditionally been able to say, yeah, that's not really true. I mean, yeah, net new compute is sometimes more expensive. Uh, although in many cases we see that it's actually not more expensive; it's actually less expensive still. Um, you know, now we have an exact use case like, well, Google did it, so what stops Azure and AWS from doing it? Yeah. I think it should make anybody quite quite dubious about any any service which is zero rated. It it's, it's, it appears on the bill as, as a zero amount, and that's because they reserve the the, the right to to bill for that in the future. Yeah, I'd be less concerned uh, about things they do charge for. That's an interesting call out, right? Like they're already they're already like isolating it, right, and and itemizing it out, even though they're not charging for it. Just yeah, just in case. Well, I mean, it kind of goes to the Amazon's thing is like, you know, they charge, they, they sometimes charge a pretty premium price for things. And we're kind of like, wow, that seems like a lot of money to charge for that, which we, we sort of feel is maybe a way to keep, you know, the floodgates at bay <laughs> so they can get you know, people who really want the service. But then they, you see the prices drop over time as they get value out of these things. Uh, and so that seems like a better model be like price are too high and then come down once you have economics to prove that it's not as expensive as you thought or the, you know, your scale actually got you the proof and the margin that you thought it would. Um, versus starting out free and then charging more later. It's always a bad answer. Um, it's interesting. One of the things I linked to in the show notes for this is a, a Reddit thread about this particular cost increase. And, you know, people, of course, on Hacker News are always, uh, sorry, not Reddit thread, Hacker News thread. Uh, on Hacker News are always kind of, you know, one way or the other and, and complaining about things. But uh, there's an interesting comment here from F. Nord Piglet. Again, I'm sorry, this is a terrible username thing. Uh, who says he's an ex-AWS <laughs> senior leader of many products in AWS. And he says... Uh, you know, Glacier is a perfect example of a product where they thought that hard drive costs would drop faster than tape storage. Uh, and so that was the original assumption of how they built the service. And then they realized that wasn't actually panning out to be true. And so they actually operated that service at a loss while they re completely rewrote the architecture uh, to be run on tape. 
and then basically move customers seamlessly without you ever knowing about it to tape uh, as they relaunched that service and started really championing again. So they ate the margin hit until they could come to a profitable answer. And that is an answer they do quite often, apparently, at AWS because it's the right thing for the customer at the end of the day if they screwed up, which that's a nice, again, a nice thing to keep in mind. And you think about your cloud provider and who you're choosing. That is very interesting because there's a lot, lot of discussion about how they could possibly offer those prices and what the technology could be given the speed at which you could recover data, even though it was minutes to hours at the time. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think we even, I think you and I, we, I think all of us have speculated at, at reInvent over beers. Like, how does the thing actually work? Because when they first launched it, you know, you could pay a premium price and you could get it faster. And there was a lot of weird things like that you could do. And it was like, well, it can't be tape because that doesn't make any sense. But the cost has to be tape because the cost is so low. And and Amazon was trying to play both sides of it. Like, well, we're going to do disks uh, and we're going to do that because we think disk prices are going to continue to crater, which didn't happen. <laughs> so, you know, they, they made a bet that was wrong. And it, it kind of answers why we were like, this doesn't make any sense for tape because it wasn't tape at the time. Now... Mm-hmm. Now, when you look at Glacier and you look at how the the data stuff was, it feels very tapeish, and now it really does feel yeah. like tape. Um, or yeah, before it did not. That huge shortage of hard drives kind of kind of came a couple of years after Glacier launched, I think, didn't it? Was it natural <laughs> disaster in Thailand or something like that? Oh and yeah, it was the yeah. uh, it was the tsunami that hit. That's uh, right. That part of yeah, the so that, that put killed. a lot of pressure on the hard drive market for for years. And now COVID, so yeah, it was a good yeah. move to move to tape. They, <laughs> they would be in bad shape right now. <laughs> Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Uh, well, if you are using Cloud Spanner, uh, which is a fully managed relational database that offers near unlimited scale, strong consistency, and industry leading high availability of five nines and Google lock in, uh, Google is finally giving you the benefit of committed use discounts, or CUDs, as we call them in the Google space, to further reduce costs for customers committing to Spanner. Uh, you can now get up to 40% discount on a three-year term for Spanner or 20% discount on a one-year term. Uh, so you can now get all of your Cloud Spanner covered with CUDs, which is always nice. At the the Google sales conference, you just know there's a whole bunch of salespeople with like a cow yeah, chewing t-shirt the, chewing. chewing the and they're, yeah. Just chew our cut. Oh. <laughs> it is a terrible name. Like every time... Yeah. And I, I talk about these more often than I like to in the day job because we're Google shop. And uh, yeah, CUDs is in my now daily lexicon of conversation things we talk about, so. which is sort of weird. <laughs> so it's getting used to it still. It's taking some time. Oh, it's good to see discounts like this on committed use. So I, I guess it really is just the same discount they're offering for committed use for for compute only, except they're applying the, that, that same type of discount to the underlying hardware that supports the service. Yeah, I mean it's like RDS RIs or savings yep. plans, yeah. right? Exactly. Data, you know, and it's the funnest thing to buy committed use for is databases because they're always going to. I mean, they run easy the to move a database. Yeah, not very many serverless databases. This word "fun" you use. I don't know <laughs> if it means what you think it means. He's covering his face up slightly. I think I think he's actually lying to us. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Got his fingers crossed behind his back. <laughs> 
Every database is only five years away from being replaced, perpetually. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, serverless databases all of a sudden make CUDs and RIs for that make no sense. But you know, those products are still pretty early days. So maybe someday that'll be a better technology. Well, Google uh, in other areas is also changing their support plans. Uh, so Google acknowledges that technical support is now more critical than ever, and they have a bad reputation of being bad at customer support. <laughs> a reasonably priced tech support service uh, for unlimited number of users is the standard offering, which is intended for general needs for small to medium businesses. And then they offer you enhanced support before you go into premium support. And enhanced support, you can have value-add services such as technical account advisors, as well as planned event support, which is like IAM service from AWS, and assured support, which includes restricting your support personnel to geographic locations uh, and attribute-based. Uh, they are That's now available to you, and they're giving you a 50% discount if you sign up by March 31st, which the show should drop just in time for you to get that discount if you're trying to do it. And if you're on the existing silver, gold, and role-based support services, those uh, offerings will all end for you on May 31st, resulting in only four offerings, basic, standard, enhanced, and premium uh, for your premium. support needs. Premium is just like Amazon Premium uh, or Enterprise or whatever. It's your premium. Yeah. They should name it Ultra Premium. That's, that'd be much better. Yeah. Uh, and so they did all that, and then this other announcement came out that apparently Google employees are grilling their leadership over cloud support staff layoffs, uh, and how do they plan to restore the trust for Google employees? Apparently they laid off about 100 engineers across of the Google Cloud technical support uh, across many of their products, including Looker, uh, and apparently it particularly impacted their technical solution engineers, or TSEs, uh, who help customers and engineers solve issues with Google Cloud apps and provide a critical layer between the platform and its users. Uh, Google apparently had mentioned previously to the team, you know, to their employees, that they were going to be moving those roles eventually to partners uh, and to uh, lower-cost regions as people kind of left the company and, and all that. So now they've now laid people off to force that process much faster, and that's where the violation of trust has come into play. So, so cutting support offerings, increasing prices, and cutting costs – Sounds like a business that maybe is in trouble. I don't know. It's, it's definitely very interesting that they're focusing very heavily on costs. Also, some of the things they've done recently around sales compensation. Like either Google's just trying to get much more structured in how they're approaching compensation and how they're approaching economics of the cloud, and they're just trying to get to profitability. Um, or there's a lot of pressure somewhere to cut costs at Google yeah. Cloud. I mean, you, they're they're marching towards reducing like the amount of loss that Google Cloud, you know does every year. And so a lot of these changes, you know, seem to be in line with that where it's a little bit about the bottom dollar. Yeah, it definitely feels that way, which is, you know, but like having an account team from Google now, I can tell you that they, they bring a lot of legs to the table. <laughs> you know, it's like your account team is like 12 people deep. If you're an enterprise account, like there's a lot of people involved in your accounts that, you know, I'm sure they all are very valuable people. And I like all the ones that I have on my account. Uh, but, you know, every enterprise account of my size has that level of, of investment from Google. That's a lot, you know, comparatively to what mm -hmm. I, you know, I used to have on AWS or even on Azure where I had to beg and plead to get a salesperson on the phone at Azure. Uh, <laughs> you know, clearly <laughs> there's other models that work as well. Yeah. So what does that team look like exactly? I mean, is it is it uh, more technical people? Is it access to it's sort of uh, cloud product engineering kind of, kind of resources? What, how... How is twelve people better than than two people? So you you have your you have a salesperson as well as a regional salesperson assigned. So that's your sales pipeline. And then you have you know solutions architects basically assigned, and he's you know there's two or three people who support him who are specialists. 
Uh, you've got um, your TAM and then a whole TAM support organization, including, uh, you know, all of your, you know, cloud concierge type people who are helping with billing and those type of issues. And then you have a whole professional services attachment, which has a bunch of people who are tied to that. And then you get, you know, like a Google Workspaces person. If you're doing Google Workspaces, you get Google Ads attachment. You get a bunch of other things like that as well uh, if you're using those products. Oh, nice. So. It's a, you know, it's an army of people <laughs> plus the partner and the partner then of course brings in their army of people as well. Um, so, you know, you go to a QBR and you're outnumbered two to one easily. To be fair, Amazon does this too, but you only see like a third or half the account team and they just rotate them every two months, which is why it's always changing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I can understand that they're tweaking their support model sucks when people have to get laid off, but I also, as a, as a customer, but I want to, I want my vendor to have a healthy bottom line and be happy with their business and excited to expand it. Yeah. I mean, as a partner, I'm sure this is, you know, like the, being able to, to take this is, is an opportunity, but yeah, it's not, not under the best circumstances. I think people are disappointed that, um, effort was not made to find new positions for those staff, at least not that we know of. And that's that's right. always a bit that's always a bit disappointing when you've when you've had employees for a number of years and you, you don't kind of treat them with, with the uh, uh, maybe the respect and the value they deserve. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Perfect. Uh, well, you know, if they're going to fire 100 people at Google, um, I'd prefer they fire 100 people from the marketing team because this week <laughs> yeah. I learned I learned that uh, the Google Chronicle team, which is like their sim product, they're blogging on Medium instead of on the Google official blogs, which is what we track for the show. So, you know, there's this thing that came in from, you know, one of the other trade presses, and I was like, why did I not hear this Google Chronicle thing? And then I look at the article, and it's like, from their recent blog post, and you click on it, it's on Medium. I'm like, really? <laughs> Who's using Medium for enterprise stuff? So anyways, uh, fire some marketing people who need to combine all these Google blog posts from all over the place and collapse them together. Uh, but there, uh, Google in the Chronicle space is announcing in preview the context-aware detections in Google Chronicle. With the release, Google is creating efficiencies in every step of customer's detection and response journey by making alerts more functionally enabled. With context-aware detections, all supporting information from authoritative sources like the CMDB, IIM, or DLP solution, including telemetry, context, relationships, and vulnerabilities are available out of the box as a single detection event. This allows you to prioritize threats with risk scoring, respond to your alerts faster, and enhance fidelity of your alerting. This launch fixes a gap in legacy analytics and SIM products where data has certainly been logically separated due to prohibitive economics, uh, which I read as you put your logs in Splunk, but it's too expensive for everything else. So we did all the other stuff in the other tool, and now they uh -huh. both have the same data because we couldn't put the data together because it would cost too much money. I read it. it's, you're exactly right. Like There's so many sources of data where it's there's too much noise, and so it's expensive to, ha to have that searchable, right? So you make some of it available. And then when you get closer to needing to, to tie that together, then you get just access to the dark room in the back where it just printed out zeros and ones. I guess they're very cost conscious if they're publishing on a medium though, and requiring their <laughs> right. customers to, to pay, pay for a subscription. You want to read their we blog. We can't afford our own blog infrastructure. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you can't I mean, at least use like a Jekyll static page generator. I mean, like I can't ask you that much, right? Come on. I have a I have a great cloud quest that could teach you how to do it on Amazon for like pennies on a dollar. <laughs> what if they use Sumerian for that? Or if it's just or if it's just something completely separate? I'm kind of wondering like why never mind. We've moved on. <laughs> it's gonna take a while to yeah. for, for that to sink in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
You'll have thoughts later. I mean, I love solutions like this if they work, right? We were talking about this. Like if this, the what, what it does is make that just noise of alerts of, you know, the, the one bucket that is okay for it to be public because it's hosting a static content site and it's got, you know, the right IP restrictions or other mitigations or something like that from just generating miles and miles of noise that a poor SOC team is having to sort through. And this allows you to add context to that in theory. What, I've never actually seen this work where it has the right context plugged in where it can actually make a decent decision and, and highlight actual risk versus something that's not all that risky. I think it's my complaint about these context things. Is the context they're aware of is typically their context. So in this case, Google is aware of their context of how these things are put yes. together. But they don't know my business <laughs> context. They don't know my technology context, how my app uses the data. And so ultimately... You know, anytime I've seen this context-aware marketing speak, it, it kind of raises this like, mm, but if, how would I actually how would I actually tell you my context? Like, how would I teach you that? Unless you're applying, you know, looking for patterns and things like with machine learning or AI, but that's not part of this announcement. So, I, yeah. it, you know, I, I like the idea of context-aware because it's a big it's a big factor in how you think about risk. But I need to be able to define my context, and unless you can do that in a way that makes sense, I don't know how this helps you. Uh, beyond knowing that now you're at least applying the context of Google, so maybe that eliminates some of the noise. Yeah. I mean, they allow you to write rules, and so you know you could sort of tie in your own context there, but then what happens is that you have a whole bunch of you know security analysts who don't have the context writing the rules, and so it just never works out. Security tools, always fun to talk about, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, partners at Azure which is everyone's favorite topic. Uh, we'll, we'll go through this one more really quick. Uh, but basically, Microsoft is announcing some new capabilities for their partners to help grow their mutual businesses. And typically, I would not, I'd just send this to Peter and say, hey, you want to know about this. But uh, there is some benefit to you as a normal Azure user. Uh, so first of all, uh, they're now making private offers with margin sharing available to their 90,000 plus cloud partners. Uh, so now ISVs can use private offer capability in the commercial marketplace to create and share margins to partners in the cloud solution provider program increasing the agility with private offers for customers and with enhancements to private offers in the commercial marketplace, ISVs can now create a unique private offer per customer in less than 15 minutes. Uh, Microsoft points out that digital buying has become accelerating since COVID because no one wants to see people in person and allows partners to embrace the marketplace as a valid sales channel for all of Azure's customers. So, uh, you know, again, this will be a lot more marketplace offers for all of you Azure users out there from your partners. Uh, you know, there's no mention to me in this about how it impacts your commitments to Azure spend or any of those kind of things. I don't know if they do those type of programs. So um, there's a lot of details that I don't actually have insight on in this particular space. So do ask your sales rep if you can reach them. We talked about earlier. You can't reach them. But if you can, ask the question. This is effective. This is effectively get allowing um, resellers to generate margin by uh cutting their own deals with the ISVs that are on the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So it should be called Azure Ponzi scheme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fine though. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're the customer, you want one, uh, you want one bill and it is tough for partners when you tell them, Hey, when you're going to pass a bunch of revenue through your books and you're going to get zero margin on that. And if, your customer defaults on it, you're stuck holding the bag. It's like, nah, it doesn't sound like that much fun. No, that sounds awful. Well, and then something we talked about previously, the Azure Health Data Services uh, platform as a service offering is now generally available. It's designed to support all of your PHI data in the cloud if you're in the healthcare space. Uh, We did talk about this in beta, so I will 
not talk about as much this time, but uh, the final set of features I included in the GA, uh, it does give you a provide uh, does provide you a suite of health data APIs, enabling you to securely ingest and unify PHI in the cloud. Things like FUR APIs, DICOM, streaming data from medtech devices, and unstructured data from clinical notes or health documents, all connected through the FUR text analytics capability. Uh, it also enables tools for data management, including de-identification, event notification, and transformation of data for downstream uses. Uh, connects your PHI data to a powerful technology in the Microsoft Cloud for healthcare systems, including deep analytics and AI development, beginning with one click to push PHI data to Azure Synapse Analytics using the Synapse link for FUR. Uh, where you can send it to Power BI for all your visualizations. Uh, you can enlist trust with layered in-depth defense and advanced threat protection aligned with strict industry compliance standards and regulatory requirements, including ISO, GDPR, HITRUST, CSF, and HIPAA through BA coverage. Azure Health Data Services helps provide customers and payers meet the requirements of the 21st Century Cures Act and CMS Interoperability and Patient Access Final Rules, and overall lowers the costs in the cloud with a consumption-based pricing model that gives you full transparency with a pay-only-for-what-you-use structure, Azure Health Data Services removes infrastructure costs associated with multiple accounts, only charging for storage, API calls, transformation, and conversion as used, which means you can try the service for small workloads and control costs as you add more complex workloads over time. All available to you now through your Microsoft rep on the healthcare side. So I don't know what the highest civilian honor that we grant is in in this country, um, but you deserve it for for making it all the way through this article. I tried to, and oh man, this one's a rough read. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those. It's one of those ones like you know. When I talk about when I talk through the MLAI stories, and I'm like, I don't understand anything they're talking about with training yeah. and all stuff like that. Like you know, for you know, having have dabbled in just enough healthcare to know what most of this is, uh, I can make it through it. But yeah, if you've never done done anything with healthcare or high trust or or HIPAA laws or CFR Part 11 regulations, like a lot of this doesn't make any sense to you. So, so appreciate you listening to me ramble through that. <laughs> and most oh, of it's not any. This this is not the fun part of that industry. So it's, <laughs> it's great when you when you take out take the fun part and say, hey, you don't have to do that part anymore. We've already talked about you and the word fun. I don't know. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what to I trust. think you would agree with me that that is not the fun part. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound anything. fun. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of acronyms. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Peter, take us to the lightning round, please. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'll do that. Let's start with Amazon MSK Connect now supports external secrets and configuration with config providers. I mean, it's so awesome that you, know, you can put your external secret onto your MSK Connect bus and then ship that secret to everybody. So perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it's much better than authenticating to Kafka with, you know, hard-coded credentials in your source code, right? Yeah. How, do, how does it work exactly? So there's the secrets you know you know and the secrets you know you don't know. Let's <laughs> not get into a debate about how you unlock your vault because <laughs> that's a whole conversation there's, that we don't have time for. <laughs> there's six other Amazon services you'll need to make that work. Yeah. And at least six of them are on containers, so <laughs> All right, Amazon Comprehend launches an entity-based sentiment analysis. That sounds like a my trip. sentiments are that I still don't understand Comprehend. Like that's yeah. my sentiment. <laughs> you can tell that you know the people who wrote this post also know that you don't know what Comprehend is or does because it's just they get go is everywhere. Like reading through, it, it's like um, Comprehend is how do we machines learn now? I guess kind of. <laughs> I 
missed Jonathan's comment because everybody was talking over each other. I said it sounds like a trip. <clears throat> oh, a trip. Because of the entities. <laughs> gotcha. Nice. How about AWS Systems Manager Change Manager now supports taking actions on multiple change requests together? Can't wait for this to get a feature in a couple of weeks. Like, AWS Systems Manager Change Manager now supports sequencing multiple changes together because yeah. someone screwed this up really badly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Turns out you can't make them all go at once. Like, that's a bad plan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You want to create the database and drop it at the same time with two different change tickets at the same mm -hmm. time? Okay, fine. That's fine. We'll sure. Do that. No problem. Sure. Ship it. <laughs> Signed by Mr. Rube Goldberg. <laughs> Trust me, it'll work. It's going to be great. You think he actually signed things, or do you think he built a machine that, that signed things for him? Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't have the answer. Um, all right. Well, let's keep going. Um, let's go with oh, public preview announcement. Azure purview workflows now in public preview. They really didn't announce anything this week, did they? <laughs> we ran out of things to announce. Scrape the bottom of the barrel, Between man. Between the <laughs> Like, whoa. Yeah. The workflow for Azure is getting really rough right now. That's why I need to purview to help me with it. <laughs> How about another one? Uh, Azure backup support for trusted launch Azure virtual machines in public preview. Yeah, so you know, you said they were trusted, but if I couldn't back them up, how much trust could I put on them? Yeah. Trust them to forget things, maybe. <laughs> trust you to lose your data. Perfect. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> exactly what I want in a VM. Uh, Amazon Route 53 Resolver DNS Firewall now significantly reduces their service cost. Hey, Google, take notes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Yeah, before, you know, every time you created a new firewall rule in the service, it was literally someone behind the scenes, like, checking this in as fast as possible. So now they've they finally automated it, which is why they can reduce the costs. Maybe. And AWS Cost Anomaly Detection supports integration with AWS Chatbot. I swear it was already integrated because I get messages from my CFO every month the bill comes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like clockwork. I, 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 I swear that was already there. Yeah. I think they give CFOs a public preview of this. Goes to their phones, goes to their, their chat service, email, smoke signals. He's gotten really creative with the emojis, though, man. <laughs> I didn't know you could swear on that many emojis, but man, it's it's impressive. Slack really gives them a lot of options. That's, I just get the knife, like that's a, and nothing else. Yeah, the problem is the tap axis. There's not a lot of options to tap axis, so like you know, you get this really creative and like all you can do is plus like thumbs up, dude. <laughs> like, it's not about the cost; it's about the about the emoji. It's like it's great. Well, to wrap this round up, I gotta give it to. Take notes, Google on the <laughs> nice. price cut, which yeah. is so relevant since now we have a favorite topic, topic of the day. Topical. Yeah. Topical. Yeah. I didn't even think about putting this together. That's, that's a new strategy. Look at lightning you. around. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> Vented it on the fly. I didn't even think of that at the time. <laughs> I, I wrote the jokes before I knew what the announcement of the week was going to be, but 
All right. Well, things are coming up. This is your last chance to probably sign up uh, for both the SQL Server and Azure SQL Conference, which is on April 5th through the 7th, as well as the Google Cloud Summit on uh, Data Cloud on April 6th. Uh, so this is your last chance to get to those. And then uh, we are approaching very quickly April, which means May is right around the corner, which means IBM Think and KubeCon Europe are coming up in early May. And then in early June, we have RSA Conference. And I'll save the rest for you to check out the show notes. But lots of conferences coming. Oh, yeah, I do for, I did forget about the DevOps Enterprise Summit virtual uh, in Europe, uh, the 10th through 12th of May. It's also available, which is a great uh, enterprise class DevOps Summit if you're into all things DevOps. So do check those out. And that is it for another fantastic week here in the cloud. Have a good night, guys. See you later. Good night. Yeah. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.